right. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, if you're visiting or checking us out or online for the first time, as the bumper may have <clears throat> set up for you, we are continuing today and walking through a series in the book of Revelation, what we do at Calvary 99% of the time. And if you come to Calvary, you've heard me say this 99% of the time. We open up a book of the Bible and we work through that paragraph through paragraph and whatever that book covers, uh, we cover. And so <clears throat> a couple months ago, we kicked off this series in the book of Revelation and we are working our way through it. And um, we're going to continue that today. And then we'll talk a little bit about throughout the sermon, a um, little what we're going to be doing in the next few weeks and then uh, resuming it again in January. So I'm glad you're here. And we're, like I said, working through Revelation. We're in a series where letters have been written to seven churches going through seven particular things. And we're winding that part of the book down today with a look at our sixth church. And so uh, I'm grateful for what God has taught me as we've looked at Christians who lived way back in 95 AD and what he's teaching us together as a church. So I'll pray and then we'll jump into what God has for us. Father, um, it is a privilege. I come expectantly because I know that there's things that I need to learn. There's ways that I need to continue to grow and to be the person that you want me to be and you're shaping me to be. And you've not left me here to guess how to do that. You've given us your word. You've preserved your word for us so that we can hear from you. And you have something for all of us this morning, Father, through your word. This was written for normal people like us a long time ago who were going through things. Um, and Father, it has application and implications for us today. And so you know what every single person in this room is going through. You know what anxieties there are. You know what challenges there are. You know what joys and blessings there are. You know the questions that are. And so amidst all that, God, we know your word is active and alive. And so um, will you work through the power of your spirit, through your word, so that we can be shaped and we can learn and we can grow. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, that we will better glorify our King, who one day we'll see again. And we pray this in his name. <clears throat> Amen. Well, if you're anything like me, and here's the reality, uh, most people and most Christians live normal ordinary lives. Most of us in this room, there's some atypical things, there's some spectacular things, there's some unusual things, but over the broad trajectory of our lives, most of us live kind of normal, ordinary lives. And those normal, ordinary lives are filled with us doing normal, ordinary things. We do those normal, ordinary things in the course of normal, ordinary days. Those normal, ordinary days make up normal, ordinary weeks, and those normal, ordinary weeks make up normal, ordinary years, and those years, for many of us, are just are then made up and make up normal, ordinary lives. What, what does your average day look like? What, what does most of your day, most of your time, most of your schedule look like? If you're like me, you've got a routine. Every morning. Okay, that's a somewhat a pastoral exaggeration. 99% of every mornings, I do the exact same thing. Exact same thing. I go to bed at night, I make my little coffee, and I have my little auto drip coffee maker ready. Come on, ready? I get up in the morning at 6.40 most mornings. I walk downstairs. I let my dog out of his crate. I then take the bed on which he has been sleeping out of his crate because we have now like bought four dog beds for my yellow lab that likes to eat his dog beds. So I remove the crate, I mean remove the bed from the crate, put it on top of the crate. Then he's panting, then he's jumping. I let him out to the backyard. I have to walk to the first step of our 
excellent. He'll go down the stairs. I don't know why. I think my dog has issues. He needs doggy therapy, if anybody knows him, right? As he is running to the yard to go do his morning business, I am walking to the basement door, open the basement door, take the lid off the dog food, take one cup scoop, pour it in the thing, pour it around, because we got the thing that he's supposed to eat slower, put it on the ground, go over, make my cup of coffee, brush my teeth. Then, by the time I'm done brushing my teeth, I hear this sound rattling around my kitchen, which is my dog now eating his dog food bowl, right? And then that begins the normal course of my day of then getting ready, taking my daughter to school, going to the edge, getting done at the edge by a certain time, coming to church, reading my Bible, getting ready for the day, day after day after day after day. That is the reality. What, what does your day look like? What does your routine look like? Do you do the same things in the same way at the same time of the day every day? And probably you do. And what I find about myself is as I get a little bit older, as I get the gray in my hair a little bit, man, I, that routine, that keeps me safe, right? Like I, I'm just warning you, when I'm like 82 years old, if you still want to talk to me and you invite me over to your house, I'm going to be that grumpy old dude that like, if you don't have half and half for my coffee, I'm just going to go ballistic, okay? I have very particular things I'm getting more particular about. It's not a good trait necessarily. Um, but think about your life. I bet you're like me. Maybe you don't have a psychopath dog, but maybe just every day the same routine. And then we just think about what just keeps coming in our lives, right? Throughout the course, there are bills to be paid, Southern Connecticut Gas still wants me to pay the bill, right? Verizon sends you a bill or auditor. There's bills to be paid every day. There's dishes to be washed. If you're in just such a busy season of life raising your kids, there's diapers to be changed. There's dogs to be walked. There's carpools to be run to. There's practices to be seen. There's dinners to be cooked. There's presents to be bought. And our days are filled with those routines and much of those just common every day thing, day after day after day. And the question is, right, we, we, if you're a Christian, many times we hear about a new podcast or we catch a new, you know, Instagram post or we hear about a new book or we come to a conference and there's this, uh, th- there's this, this challenge that we got to do something extraordinary. Like, man, you got to do something you've never done for Jesus before, and you got to make a difference. And we hear about these people who've done these things, and we think, oh, maybe that's what I need to do. But the reality is that for most Christians, that's not what God calls them to do. For most Christians, what God calls them to do is to be normal, faithful people in the everyday, mundane course of life. Normal, faithful people in the ordinary, mundane, day-to-day activities and schedules in which we find ourselves. And so what does it look like to do that? Right? We know what it looks like to sell all your money and go be a missionary somewhere, right? but, but what does it look like not to sell all your, give all away your money? What does it look like to remain right where God has you doing the ordinary, mundane things in a way that brings honor and glory today? And I think today we're going to get some insight as we look at church number six on our quest to see number seven. Um, and so I think this church today that we're going to study helps provide some insight into that. What church are we going to look at? Where does this church look like? Well, our text is going to be um, Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13. Revelation 3, 7 through 13. If you've got a device, if you've got a Bible, I'll flip it open, open it up. And let me just read, and we'll see where this church is. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, to the angel in the church of Philadelphia, not the city where they're trying to drown their World Series sorrows in Philly cheesesteaks, 
with or wit or without, right? I don't know what that's all about, but if you're from Philly, I'm sure the wit or without makes sense on the cheesesteaks, right? This isn't the Philadelphia Phillies hometown. Uh, we got a map. This is an ancient city uh, back in 95 AD, and it's right here. And if you've been with us, what we did is this book of Revelation that's all about, well, majority of the book of Revelation is all about things to come. But John starts it with talking about things that are, and specifically Jesus wants to address things that are going on in local churches. Before he talks about what's going to happen, which we'll get into in January, he's going to talk about what is happening. And he's been addressing local churches, and as we've been saying to these local churches, is, guys, I've left you in charge of my kingdom. I've left you in certain places and certain cities to do certain things, and some of y'all are doing great. And some of y'all are knuckleheads. And he's been addressing that, and we started in Ephesus, and... The order in which it's written is kind of this north loop, whoop, and we've been working up because this was a trade route, and most of these cities are on kind of this U.S. mail, well, not U.S. mail, on this mail delivery route. And so we start off as this morning, a Pergamos, Thaya, Tyra. <laughs> if you weren't here for that, you have no idea why I said it or why. It doesn't matter. I talked about it last week. Uh, last week, we're in Sardis, and then this week, we're here in Philadelphia, right? In Philadelphia. And here's how the church is described, this church of Philadelphia. Um, if you look at verse uh, 8, it describes the church this way. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And then here's the clause that kind of sets up a little bit of what we see about them. I know that you have but little power... And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I know that you have but little power. That word doesn't mean that they're like uh, weak. What it means is, hey, I know you guys are small. You're a small church. This was a small group of Christians, unlike some of the other churches. It wasn't, there were no pastors traveling to the church of Philadelphia to learn about the church growth movement. There were no pastors learning and going to the church of Philadelphia to learn about how to have a 10,000-person church. This was a small church in its culture, in its town. It was kind of an insignificant church. When you looked at other churches around it, it didn't stack up. It had no big reputation. There was nothing flashy. There was nothing typical about, atypical about it. It was just an ordinary church made up of ordinary, normal, faithful Christians in an ordinary city trying to live their ordinary lives faithfully. It was stable. It was plugging away. Interestingly, there's no criticisms of this church. They don't have a big problem to fix. There's no chaos. It's stable. It's ordinary. It's good. It's pretty routine about their story. And so what does God commend these people who just kind of seems like ordinary, everyday people. What does he tell them? Hey, I'm so glad that your faithfulness in the ordinary course of your life looks like this. What does he recommend? What does he challenge them in the course of your ordinary lives? Here's what you should continue to do. Well, that's kind of what we're going to talk about this morning. And so let me just read the whole letter that was written to them, and then we'll pull back and pull some things out of it. Okay, so Here's the letter that a group of Christians in the city of Philadelphia would have been delivered to them, and then when they were gathered together like this, somebody would have read it in their midst, and here's what they would have heard. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one's opens. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, 
I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall I go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. From that, from what he commends them on, from what he encourages them on, from what he challenges them to keep doing, we're going to see five things for regular Christians to do. Five things from this text for normal, everyday, regular Christians to do. So let's jump into it. The first one we see from something we've now read twice But back in verse 8 where he says this, Behold, means pay attention, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Open door likely refers to some specific opportunity that that group of Christians has for impact. That there's some unique thing that God has opened up in their community, in their culture, in their relationship, in their sphere of influence where they can make an impact for God, where they can make an impact for the gospel in terms of evangelism, in terms of outreach. And he says that I have set. I'm the one that Jesus is saying has put that before you. And the implication to them, right, what they should be thinking when they heard this is, guys, Man, there is something exciting and something special that Jesus has put before the church in Philadelphia, that he's put it right there for you, that it's an open door for you, right, that he wants you to jump into and he wants you to make an impact for the glory of him and the good of him in that city in which you live. But they'd have to do more than just think about that reality. They would have to do more than just think about that there is an open door in front of them They would have to do something about that open door. Sometimes, a little secret, if you work on our custodial team or our trustee team or an elders, close your ears for this part of the sermon, okay? Sometimes, hypothetically, we have people over for dinner. And sometimes, hypothetically, those people don't like dogs. So sometimes, hypothetically, I take my dog's crate and my dog in my amazing 2001 Toyota 4Runner, which is now working like a newborn baby, right? Jesus has resurrected it. Praise the Lord. Amen. And sometimes, hypothetically, somebody then brings the crate and the dog hypothetically to his office in the church, okay? I mean, I don't know who would do that, but maybe somebody does. So when I do that, I pick the crate into my office, I keep the dog in the truck, and then I put the leash on my dog, and (laughs) I bring him to the upstairs front door. So he's all happy, he's all walking on a little cement, (laughs) okay? Then I open the door, and then my dog freezes. He freaks out. I do not understand this, right? He like, he like gets his claws out and he puts his feet down because he, he does not want to walk through that door. I th- what I've noticed through my years of doggy is the different uh, texture of the flooring freaks him out. He doesn't, I don't get it, okay? But he, he, he like freezes and I have to do either one of two things. I have to either think, are there any neighbors watching? Okay. If there are neighbors watching... I gently pick up my 90-pound lab, and I lovelyly carry him kind of over the threshold. If there's no neighbors watching, I'd probably say very unpastoral words as I drag him into the church, right? 
but it's chaos. Bro, it's like Ford. There is an open door in front of you, dude. Walk through the daggum door, right? An open door to get you somewhere doesn't do any good if you don't walk through it. And I think for the people in this place, right, man, realizing that there was an opportunity that God's put before them for impact, then that's important. But this, the, the metaphor of the door is also important because the implication is, but guys, you got to walk through it. Like God has opened up an opportunity for you. Don't be like my dog that stands at the door to the church of Philadelphia and just looks at it and is freaked out. Here's from that kind of the first thing for re- faithful, regular Christians to do. Expectantly look for opportunities that God puts before you and walk through them. Walk through them. What we want to do at Calvary is to build a body of disciples who personally and collectively reach and impact other people with God's love and truth. Personally and collectively reach and impact other people with God's love and truth. And what we see in this first paragraph, this first idea, is that for that normal, ordinary church of normal, ordinary people, God says, look, in your sphere of influence, I've put a door in front of you that there you can make an impact. You can let people know about me. You can serve people. You can spread my truth. It is an open door. Don't dig in your heels and not walk through it. Man, cross the threshold. Walk through that moment and wait and see what happens when your faith intersects with God's faithfulness, what he might have in store for you. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, are the only things that you're looking for, all the things that you have to do as part of your normal every day and schedule, and your schedule and your normal routine is smothering you. And maybe in the course of that, you don't have the radar to be pinging around you thinking about, man, what opportunities may God have put in front of me? If you're a Christian... Are you expectant and looking for the person, for the moment, for the impact, for the need that God has opened the door and said, bro, there it is? Are you thinking about that? When was the last time, if you're a Christian, that you prayed for that type of opportunity? We pray for our cars to not break down. We pray for our kids to get in the college or the trade school or the career or the skilled job that we want them to. We pray that our heating bill won't be too bad. We, we pray for all sorts of things. And when was the last time you prayed, God, man, I'd love an opportunity to be able to impact somebody around me with your love and your truth? And then did you look for it? Did you look for it? And if you looked for it, and if you knew that God was putting in front of you, did you walk into it in faith trusting him? Or did you put up your heels and dig in like my dog and say, oh my gosh, there's an open door, but no, I don't know. I don't want to press into it because I don't know the right thing to say. I don't know what they're going to think of me. Those are all great questions to think about, but I think sometimes we miss the opportunities God wants because of fear. Because we're more comfortable walking on this surface than that surface, and God's like, bro, what do you want me to do? Grab you by the neck and drag you through it? Here's the challenge. Sometimes in my sermons I throw challenges at the back end. Here's a challenge in the front end. If you're a Christian... And I'm going to do this, and I'm going to invite you to do this with me. For the next six days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I'll give you this afternoon off and next Sunday off. The next six days, 
Will you be willing every morning to pray for God to put a gospel impact opportunity in front of you? Will you be specifically willing to pray, God, will you specifically open a door in my sphere of influence and then give me the courage to walk through it? And we'll kind of talk about this later, but when God gives those doors, sometimes it's displaying the love of God, right? Sometimes that's what it is. Sometimes it is speaking truth, but it is never our job to close the deal or to convince somebody. We're going to talk about that. It's just our job to be obedient in the opportunities that God's put before us. But some of uh, me, so much of my life is praying for so many other things, which are important things, but not open door things. Will you be willing to do that personally? Where God has you, on your school, in your sports team, at the office, on the job, in your carpool, at the Little League field, wherever it may be. God, this past week, gave us corporately an amazing open door that he's been faithful to give to us for years, right? And you've heard us talking about, and some of you are familiar, and a bunch of you know about it because you served in it, but on Monday, Halloween night, we've done what we've done for, dec- well, I don't know, decades, years, and we had a trunk or treat, right, which is an amazing open door to show God's love to countless number of peoples in our town and our surrounding town. And so we, I just want to show you some photos of what that night looked like. And we start with this photo of kind of the setup, so you see the overall setup um, and then, as is the very beginning of the night when it was just kicking off, and then as the night went on, man, here, here's what happened at that night, right? An open door that a bunch of you walked through. 800 sticks of cotton candy were given out. Woo! Whoever was spinning all that cotton candy, I know you went home with cotton candy dust all over you, so just expense your clothes and we'll give you a new pair of jeans or whatever, right? Uh, 1,000 bags of popcorn. It's a lot of popcorn, right? But here's the amazing thing. 60,000 pieces of candy we were able to give up as a t- give out as a tangible way of God's love. And the team stopped counting at 2,000 people. Once the clickers hit 2,000 people through the doors, it's like, bro, I'm my thumbs that, right? We need thumbs or carpal tunnel syndrome from kicking. And, and it's not necessarily about numbers, but what it is about is that a bunch of you gave up your time on a weeknight after you'd worked all day to come to serve because you knew that there was an opportunity for people who may not know Jesus to come onto the campus and you and we together as a church saw that as an open door and you said, man, I'm going to walk into it. And you did. And who knows what might have come from that. We've heard stories about families who are sitting here today because they came to Trunk or Treat and somebody here smiled at them and was kind to them six years ago. It's planting seeds. It's planting seeds in different ways at different times. And man, who knows what seeds God planted on Monday night because of your willingness to serve him and walk through the open door. And so we're grateful for that. So thank you for that. There's some more opportunities for us to continue to do that. And so I'd love to just kind of highlight um, two things as we come up to the Thanksgiving and the Christmas season on November 20th. So November 20th. That's November 20th. On November 20th, we're going to have a Thanksgiving service, and it's awesome. We had a baptism class last week. I don't know how many of those folks are going to be baptized, but man, it was slammed. And we're going to celebrate baptisms. We're going to have baby dedications. Man, we're going to sing about the faithfulness of God, and we're thankful for life changing for what he's doing. And we also want to be a church that out of what God has done for us and how God has blessed us, that we want to have that overflow to bless other people. And so what we do, and if nothing else with inflation and the price of food. I mean, eggs are like, I bought eggs yesterday, $5.49. I'm going to 
steal some of your chickens and made my own eggs, okay? Um, it's crazy. But man, we're, what we want to do is bless people that are maybe going through financial hard times, and we've done this for years, meaningful ways in food and in gift cards. And this is an opportunity, an open door, another one for us together as a church, and you individually as part of that, to help serve, right? To walk through an open door to make an impact. And so on your way out today, you're going to pass, pass a kiosk. And on that kiosk, there are some tags. I have another tag floating around, but it's gone. Tags that look, it was raptured. Tags that look like this. <laughs> tags that look like this. And uh, turkey tag, gift card tags. And there's also brown kind of shopping baskets with a bag A, bag B, bag whatever, okay? Here's what we would love for you to do. If you're interested in being a part, just in a small way, but trying to bless other people and walk through an open door this Christmas and Thanksgiving season, here's what we'd ask you to do. If you're able, decide, hey, I can bring a 10-buck gift card back. I could bring a turkey back. I could fill this bag. We want, if you're able, take a tag. Now, I say this every year, and I've, I've, you know, as a good attorney would say, apparently it's the way I phrase the question, as opposed to like saying, you guys didn't understand it. Okay. If you take a turkey tag, what do you think would be amazing to bring back? Wait, let me just ask it one more time. If you take a turkey tag, what would be appropriate and what do you think you should bring back? Yes! Now, we won't spend the next 40 minutes going through every tag. If you take, but we will. If you take a gift card tag, bring back a gift card. If you take a bag, there is a grocery list. We would love to, for you, we expect, we ask, we command, we exhort, whatever word. What's on the list is what we want you to bring back with a bag, okay? We don't care that you have a fruitcake sitting around for 1960 that you really think would be blessing to somebody. We don't care that there's a can of peaches that expired back in 1997 that you think would, whoa, some family really wants my nasty peaches, okay? No! <laughs> Sorry, this sermon's gonna be a little long. It can't be long, I got three meetings after this. Okay, whatever you take, that's what you bring back. Now. Okay, got it? Good. You will bring that back on the 20th. We will have collection sites. We will celebrate. And then I'm telling you, that stuff impacts people who come. They'll pick it up that day. And it is a blessing to so many, so many, so many families. It is. It is. Um, one thing we do ask, and this is really important because we got an amazing team that coordinates all this. I don't really do anything with it um, unless this doesn't work right. And then Jimmy T and I do have things to do with it. This is really important, okay? All of this is important. This, if you, we want you to take the tag. Take it, physically. Take it. Take, we don't want you to take your iPhone and take a picture of it because here's what happens. Because we end up, like, right, with you're taking pictures. We don't know if nobody took a tag. Do we need turkeys? Do we, and we lose all sorts of counts. And then Jimmy T and I are, like, stop and shop at 2.30 in the morning trying to work deals on cranberry sauce, okay? So take the tag that's your thing. Bring back the tag, whatever the tag said. Don't just snap a photo of something and say you're going to bring that. We need that to keep count, okay? So that's an amazing opportunity. On the 20th, we're also going to collect Operation Christmas Child boxes. Uh, we're a distribution center for that, and there's shoe boxes out there. There's instructions about how to fill those up. E all of those things we'll receive back on November 20th. You'll bring your turkeys. You'll bring your gift cards. You'll bring your food baskets. We'll bring Operation Christmas Child. We will just be grateful that even though some of us are struggling ourselves, 
ourselves, God has still blessed us and we can bless other people. And we're grateful for doors that he's put in front of us to walk through. We'll be grateful that there's families at Calvary with amazing young kids who are like, man, I want to plant the flag and I want this to be my church. And we're going to pray over them and pray with them and pray for the request. And we're going to have all sorts of people of all sorts of ages get wet in Trumbull public water because they love Jesus and they are thankful for how he's impacted their life. And all of that's coming up on November 20th. And another open door for us to walk through as a church. And so... Uh, I'd challenge you and encourage you and put that opportunity before you. In addition to seizing opportunities for open doors that are in front of us in our schedules, in our routines, what else should we do, right? Well, what is one thing that God commends them for? Verse 8, we see some of what uh, God has commended them for. Again, we've read this, but um, I know your works. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. You have kept my word and not denied my name. Normal, ordinary, everyday people in normal, everyday, mundane tasks of life. And amidst all that, these guys are faithful to God's word. They're keeping his word. They're not denying him. And that follows up with this challenge down in verse 11 uh, to continue that. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And then here's the challenge. Hold fast to what you have. You've been faithful. You've been listening to my word. You've been getting to know me through my word. You haven't denied me. Those are amazing things. And then the challenge to this group in this city is, hey, don't let go of those things. Hold fast to what you've been doing. Don't give up. Keep pressing on. Here's the second thing for faithful, regular Christians to do. Keep walking faithfully. Keep walking faithfully. So much, so much of the Christian life is obediently and faithfully resting in the power of the Holy Spirit, putting one foot in front of another and walking on. It's taking another step, taking the next step, taking an ongoing step, step after step, after step, over the course of the hours, over the course of the days, over the course of the years of your life, in obedience to God, even if he never calls you to anything extraordinary. In the ordinary stresses, the ordinary anxieties, the ordinary unknowns, keep walking faithfully. When you woke up, at 4.30 in the morning on Friday because of financial stress that you don't know how all the numbers are going to work, keep walking faithfully. When there's something you've been waiting on God for and all there is is silence. I, I hate waiting. Hate it. I don't particularly like waiting on God. This morning I had this chair I sit in and I was looking out and it was a little cloudy this morning. I was just watching, I was praying through the sermon and thinking through it. And for a moment, the clouds parted. And there was just like this quarter-sized little hole where I saw the blue. And then the clouds covered them up again. And I thought, man, what a great metaphor of sometimes our lives, right? We're waiting to see something of God. We're waiting to know something from God. And when we're looking, all we see is clouds. And we're like, man, I just want those to part so that I can see the blue, so that I know what he has for me. I know what's going to work out. And if you're in a place where you feel like God is playing hard to get, 
If you're in a place where you feel like God is distant, if you're in a place where you're waiting on God, keep walking on. When you're a parent and you feel like the newborn baby's never going to sleep and you wonder, is this other kid ever going to get a diapers? And you're trying to be a godly parent, but you are worn out. And if one more kid needs one more sippy cup, you're going to be like, ah! And you're tired. And you wonder, is this season ever going to end? Keep walking faithfully. What is the most challenging thing you're facing in your life right now? What is the most challenging thing? For some of you, it's health. For some of us, it's a desire to have a baby. And for whatever reason, that hasn't yet been part of God's story. For some of it's finances. For some of us, there's a change coming up. We don't know what that's like. For some of us, your marriage is in chaos. What's the most challenging thing that you're facing right now in your life? And in that moment, what would it look like for you to continue to walk faithfully? What does faithful walking look like in your story and in your moment this morning? What about those moments when we're walking faithfully? What about those moments when we're not denying Jesus? What about those moments when we're trying to live well for him and trying to take open doors and people around us are like, bro, what's wrong with you? We get criticized, we get mocked, we get made fun of particularly in this cultural moment. I know pastors have always said that, right? If you read stuff from this old dude named Spurgeon, he's like, oh, we're living in the times of Satan. Well, we maybe we've always been living in these times where culture is not aligned with God. It just has different flavors and has different nuances. But in a cultural moment when truth is like, brother, it's whatever I feel, whatever makes me happy, like whatever feels good to me, whatever makes me feel safe, whatever seems accepting, then that seems to be true. And it's this, it's this weather vane that shifts in the wind based on where the wind's blowing, right? In that moment when maybe some of you are like, no, I actually believe there is something to be true. When you say that or you speak that and you get pushed back for that, what are we supposed to do? What do we navigate then? Well, apparently there was some of that going on in this church. And so Jesus speaks into that in verse nine. And let's, we're gonna make, here's what it says. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews. Now, God is, Jesus is not calling Jewish people Satan, okay? But behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Synagogue of Satan, say that they are Jews or not. What seems to be happening in that culture is that there were some people who were culturally Jewish, right? Uh, their heritage was Jewish. And what they thought was, hey, this guy, Jesus, was crazy. We don't want anything to do with him. We're good with God, even though we're rejecting Jesus, because our DNA has Jewish DNA in it, and that's sufficient, and that's enough. And so we're in a right relationship with God. And what God is saying is, hey, those guys are mistaken. That that's a lie, right? Just being in a synagogue of cultural Jewish people doesn't mean that you're restored in a relationship with God, because that came through Jesus in the New Testament through the New Covenant. And apparently what was happening is for these faithful, ordinary people in this little city who were trying to be faithful, these group of people were mocking them or criticizing them or saying, hey, well, you guys are liars. You're not right with God. You're wrong. You're off base. You're crazy. And they were getting that pushback. They were getting that static. And what God tells that Christians is, hey, I know you're going through it, but listen, one day, someday, those people who have been mocking you for the truth that you've stood up for, 
Those people who have said that you're off base, that you're wrong, I, Jesus is saying, I am going to let them know that actually you were right. That everything they said was false and untrue actually is true. And Jesus says, I will be the one who will make them come to that realization. Third thing, based on what it appears these people were doing for you and for me to do, and this is kind of wordy, but I don't know. That's okay. I don't get paid by the word. Maybe I should. Maybe I... Here's the deal. Say what is, this is what we see them doing and they getting pushed back and God tries to encourage them, bring us to this point. Say what is biblically right and do what is biblically right. But do not think, this is so important, that it's your responsibility to convince everybody that you are right. Do not think that it's your responsibility to convince everybody what is right. If you look at the pronoun in that verse, the pronoun that Jesus says, I will make them. It doesn't say, hey, I know you're getting criticized by those guys, so you dig in harder to prove to them that you're right and they're wrong. That's not what the verse says. The verse says, look, you weather what you're getting. You weather the pushback. One day Jesus says, I am the one who has the responsibility, and I the one who has the ownership, and I'm the one who one day is going to show them the truth. But that's Jesus' job. That's not my job. That's not your job. And I think sometimes what we do is, okay, we're okay saying what's biblically right and doing what's biblically right, but we're then press into it because then it's about, I'm going to convince you that I'm right. I'm going to convince you. I'm going to win. Man, sharing God's love and truth is never about us having the burden to win. It's, and this is why I think some of us don't do it. Because we think to ourselves, well, if I can't, I don't know how to make them change their mind. I don't know how to persuade them. I don't know how to close the sales deal. And so since I'm worried about doing that, I'm not even going to pursue being obedient and talking to them about truth. Because we're taking on something that's not our job to do. Our job is to live the way that Jesus wants us to live through the power of the Spirit and to proclaim biblical truth and then to let the Holy Spirit of God do what he chooses to do with that once it's been put out there. But sometimes we stop and we dig in like my dog because we think we have to then have them absolutely agree with what we said. No, you're taking on something that's not your job. That's God's job. You're not the Holy Spirit. Did you write that down? Did you know that? Thank you, Dean. <laughs> Dean's like, whoa, I always thought I was. You're not the Holy Spirit. We can't change people's hearts. That was never our job to change people's hearts. It's our job to proclaim truth about the person who can change their hearts. It's our job to proclaim the truth about the person who gives them hope, not to bang them over the head. So, so, hey, say what is biblically right and do what is biblically right, but don't think that it's your responsibility to convince them that you are right. The next point, I'm going to read the text. Um, I'm not going to fully unpack it because we're now 31 minutes and 13 minutes in the sermon as I kind of knew we'd be, and I don't want to rush over this, okay? Because this is, this is now starting to get into the parts some of you came for, right? If you ever go to the movies and you get your popcorn and you want to see Maverick, oh, we were just talking about Maverick in the intro to Calvary class last week, about how it is the best movie ever made, okay? So if you go to the movies and you want to see Maverick, you got all these previews, 
And you're like, ah, I don't want to see Brad Pitt on the train beating people up. Like, I didn't come for that. I came for bow, now, 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 right? Some of you, man, you're like, okay, Trevin Church is interesting, but I want that. I came for the Antichrist. What's the mark of the beast? I want to know about the rapture. I want the bulls to trump. So you're about to get your first taste. It's, here it is, right? I'm about to read something, but I am not going to unpack it fully because I don't want to rush through it in three minutes. So I'm going to put it out there. I'm going to tease it. And then in January, we're going to come back and fully unpack this, okay? So, so here's the next thing that God says to these people. That is to encourage them and to encourage us. Verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I will keep you from the hour of trial. The hour of trial is not, I'm going to keep you from hard times. I'm going to keep you from stressful times. I'm going to keep you from anxiety. This is specifically referring to um, a moment in biblical history that's referred to as the tribulation. Okay? Capital T, tribulation. The tribulation, this moment in biblical history and earth's history that is most likely yet to come, but we'll talk about all that when we talk about it, um, where, man, God is beginning to fix what is broken, but he's beginning to fix what is broken by judging and dealing with what is broken. And it is not going to be a pleasant moment. And what he promises to these people is, I will keep you from that. Okay, Christians, he's saying, I will keep you from that. Other verses, if you want to read ahead that talk about the tribulation, essentially Revelation chapter 6 through 18. A lot of those details are in this. Daniel 12, 2, Mark 13, 19, and 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. If you look at Scripture and you kind of want to start reading ahead about different verses to talk about that moment, these would be some great uh, places to start. And what Jesus is telling Christians here is, I am going to keep you from that. Now, the question becomes, is the keeping from that by removing Christians from it or by, uh, in some way, safekeeping us through it? Is it removing from, is the protection by removing or by safekeeping, okay? And to think about that and to understand that, we have the amazing opportunity coming up in a few uh, months to it. We got to talk about the Greek pronoun ek. Ek. What does that mean? I don't know. Come back and find out, okay? We need to talk about Jesus used the exact same phrase, keep from. What did it mean when Jesus said that? Noah, if you're familiar with the biblical story, if you're not, there's this deal where God said, I'm going to judge the earth. And there was a group of people, Noah and his family, and God said, hey, I want to keep you from that judgment. But the way that kept God kept them from that judgment was not by removing them out of the face of the earth, but by keeping them safe on the earth in a unique way while those things were happening. So we got to figure out, as we dig into the you know, the maverick part of Revelation about the, all this tribulation, is it protection by removing or uniquely keeping us shielded here through it? And we're going to break that down. We'll have a little Greek word. We'll have maybe a little line. We'll have some options. Um, but it's too important to try to just 
bust out in two minutes, and we need to take our time with it walking through it. And we'll do that in a few minutes. But, but here's a spoiler alert. Ready for a spoiler alert? Man, it could be either one. <clears throat> Great. Some of you are going to be a low attendance that Sunday. There are plausible arguments for either option. And we'll talk about what do we do with that. And <clears throat> I am, I do want to be honest, when, it's, when it could be either one, and Christians agree it could be either one, we need to know that, okay? Um, at the same time, sometimes I will tell you what my personal opinion is as Peter Smith, not the statement of Calvary Church, to try to, and we'll walk through all that, okay? But um, here's what we are for today on this. So come back in January, we're going to talk about it then, but here's what we see from this today. Have confidence in the promise of God's future protection, even if you do not know the means of God's future protection. Have confidence. He's telling these guys, look, I'm coming back. It's going to get bad, but I'm going to take care of you. To encourage them, to give them peace, to give them hope, to give them comfort. Have confidence in the promise of God's future protection, even if you don't know the means of God's future protection. And then there's one more thing for us to consider, one more point. Um, what, what do we do in those moments when our ordinary circumstances of our lives maybe cause us to be discouraged? What about those days when maybe you feel spiritually low? What about those days when you're trying to look up to God and you feel like all there is is cloud cover? Spiritually, all you feel is cloud cover. And you maybe, what about those days when maybe you feel guilt? What about those days when maybe you have doubt about what does God think of me? Am I okay? Am I good? Have I somehow slipped out of God's love? What about those moments when the enemy wants to tell us lies about our security before God and our value before God and our worth about God? What do we need to know for those moments? Well, here's kind of the last thing we're pulling today, verse 12. The one who conquers, meaning the one who's faithful, meaning the Christian who, this doesn't mean you lose your salvation, it's just describing the normal, ordinary Christian who continues to live faithfully for Jesus, right? That that is their story, that will be their story. He says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, out of my own name. I will make Christians a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. A pillar. <clears throat> You've seen, we've seen it in different ci- pictures of different cities when we've talked about different cities. I have shown you pillars that are still standing of buildings. Pillars that were put in place and have remained steadfast and not moved. In this place, in this verse, what it's referring to is the pillar referring to stability permanence, immovability. And what Jesus is promising these Christians is, guys, if you're in my kingdom, then you're always in my kingdom. And that position is fixed. That relationship, that reality is immovable. That is secure. That is planted in the ground. And it's not secure and planted in the ground because you're necessarily good people. It's secure and planted in the ground because you're people who have believed in what Jesus has done for you. Your people are people who understand that there was sin that separated you from God and that you could never overcome that. And that Jesus came and died as a substitute for you because of you in your place instead of you. And he took your sin and he gave to you forgiveness. 
That's what this book is about. That a God who longs to have a relationship with you and all of us have said, we know better than you, God. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to pop some smoke and do it our way. And God's like, good luck. And when we made that choice to do it our way, it created this fissure, this rupture between us and God that we could never be good enough to work our way to. And we needed somebody to be good enough for us. And so Jesus came and said, I'm going to be punished for them in their place as a substitute. And in that moment, it was this exchange. You give me your sin. You give me the punishment that's due to you. I'm going to take that instead of you. I'm going to give to you my righteousness, my forgiveness, and then you are going to be in me. I use this illustration a lot. I love what Zach used a few weeks ago with Play-Doh a few months ago, but I didn't have time to go to Play-Doh. But here's the deal, right? This constantly talks about in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Here is me, turkey. It's appropriate, okay? <clears throat> this idea, my turkey, me, I'm now in this. What do you see? Do you see the card anymore? No. You see what it's in. And that's the reality of being in Christ. What being in Christ means is that when we respond in faith to Jesus, we are then in Christ. And when the Father looks down at us, he doesn't see all our failures. He doesn't see all our mistakes. He doesn't see all the things we wish we didn't wish we did. What he sees is the righteousness and the holiness and the perfection of his Son. He sees this. He doesn't see us because we are in Christ. And because of that... Not because you come to Calvary Church three out of four Sundays a week. Not because you buy a turkey for people. Not because you do nice things. Not because you try to cuss less or drink a beer less. Not because of anything that we do, but we're fixed, we're stable, we're secure in the kingdom of God because we were in Christ because of faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And what Jesus is saying, if that's what you believe, look, what you need to know is you're good. You're fixed. You're immovable. You will never leave my house or leave my kingdom. Even when you mess up big time. Even when you fall big time. Even when you, there's a great line of song I've referenced before, a song that talks about God playing hard to get. Do you ever feel that spirit, your, your feelings, your emotions? You're like, I hope there's a God, but I don't feel it. I feel that. There are many times emotionally, I don't feel close to God. But the barometer of our relationship with God is not what our emotions are telling us. The barometer of our relationship with God is what Jesus has done for us and the fact that we're in Christ. Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. Jesus promises and delivers. And delivers. For these people in this culture, the idea of being fixed and immovable would have had specific significance because in this region, there were earthquakes all the time, and there wasn't any app on their phone to tell them when the Richter scale is about to trigger, right? So they'd literally be sitting in a moment like this, and there'd be an earthquake. There were earthquakes in the city close to the time when this was written before it, and everybody had to leave their houses. They were fixed in one place, but they had to bail and go out to the country and live in tents so that they wouldn't fall down on them, and this... People in this culture were constantly living with unknowns and uncertainties and transience and shifting sand. And to them being told that something was fixed and secure, man, they would know what that meant because they were used to living lives that were insecure because of the culture around us. Maybe you feel like everything around you is shifting. 
Maybe you feel like there's a lot of unknowns. You don't know when the next hit is going to come, but you're fixed. And here's the fifth thing for faithful, regular Christians to do. Rest securely in your guaranteed place in Jesus' kingdom. Rest securely in your guaranteed place in Jesus' kingdom. I'll invite the worship team to come up here as we end our time together. And if you've been taking notes, filling your bulletin, seeing one of these points, I don't know which one of these may be for you today. Maybe nothing we've talked about is for you today. You know what? Maybe it's for you this time next year when you're going through something, when you're processing something. I I don't know what's going on. I don't know where you are, but uh, I'd encourage you to think about is there some comfort, some encouragement, some hope that maybe we can get today at the Church of Calvary from what was written a long time ago to the church in Philadelphia. As we think about our permanence and our security in Jesus, for those of you this morning who your feelings are lying to, your emotions are lying to, you have doubts because of what you've done or not done, and you're just feeling like things are up in the air, let me just read this for us and over us, and then we'll sing our last song and worship together. Romans 8 says this. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God elect? It is he, God, who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Because of that, then there's these questions and a truth. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulations or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are guarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Right? The question is, okay, who's going to separate us? I'm facing all these things. I have all these feelings. I have all those circumstances. Sometimes in the middle of the night, I wonder, right, to the, are those things separating me? And then Paul gives this resounding response. He says this, no, no. In all these things, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God who is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you believe in Jesus you're good. If you believe in Jesus, you're not guilty anymore. If you believe in Jesus, you can have confidence facing death because Jesus put death in its grave. That's our hope. That's our confidence. Father, Thank you for the assurance and the confidence that you give to us. Thank you that you know we doubt. Thank you that you know sometimes the darkness can be dark and the feelings and emotions can lead us astray and you continually to remind us of your faithfulness. I pray that for somebody in here who's processing Jesus in the reality, Holy Spirit, that you will open their eyes and awaken them spiritually and draw them to yourself. Father, I pray that for those people who came in here just eager for hope, who needed something 
to allow them to take the next step, that the confidence of their identity in Christ and the hope they have in Christ will give them joy as we end our service today. And Father, thank you for the moment and the reality and the truth that we've read that our King is coming back soon. And one day, someday, we won't have to live by faith and we won't have to live by hope because we'll be living by sight. And until the day that we see you face to face, will you strengthen our hope and strengthen our faith. Amen.